Hello, my name is Stephen Brown. And I'm Ken Barrett. Welcome to Brainland podcast number 14. In recent years, the words neurodisability and normal have tended to be replaced by the less negative terms neurodiverse and neurotypical. Now, this is to reflect the fact that there are a variety of neuronal brain architectures, and while in some people this may have a negative impact on their life, it isn't always the case. In fact, in some, their diversity may be seen as a kind of superpower. Um, a number of successful entrepreneurs have been very open about their poor school performance, often due to severe dyslexia, and have suggested that although correct spelling eludes them, they see connections and opportunities that others miss. Many scientists, academics, people in tech fields are on the autistic spectrum. In fact, the ability to focus with great intensity on a narrow, narrow area of interest without being troubled by social distractions has even been suggested by some to be the next stage of evolution. A form of neurodiversity that has received less attention in this way is Gilles de la Tourette's syndrome, also known as just Tourette's. But back in the 1980s, one of the people described by Oliver Sacks in his book, The Man Who Mistook His Wife for a Hat, was a drummer with Tourette's who saw many positives from his condition. And in 1992, Sachs published a paper in which he put forward the idea that Tourette's may be associated with increased levels of creativity. Well, we wanted to explore this further on the podcast and so approached an old friend and colleague from the British Neuropsychiatry Association, Hugh Rickards. Hugh is Professor and Consultant in Neuropsychiatry at the National Centre for Mental Health in Birmingham and I'm delighted that he's agreed to come on the podcast. So welcome, Hugh. Hi. Hi. Nice to meet you both. So, Hugh, could you start by telling us about your background and, and how you became interested in Gilles de la Tourette syndrome? Sure. I think probably like many people about my age, when I was a teenager and interested in medicine, I read Oliver Sacks and the one man who mistook his wife for a hat. Mm. And I thought that was amazing. And I read about the jazz mm. drummer and the, the idea that somebody could have an illness but have a talent at the same time was sort of fascinating to me. I think, especially as a young person, that seems like a, you know, maybe we were brought up on the idea that, you know, illness isn't associated with talent or something. So that, mm. and then when I was at medical school, I heard a lecture on it from one of my senior colleagues, uh, Tim Betts, and he lectured on that subject. I thought, wow, that's amazing. Mm. And I thought how, and it seemed like quite a biologically caused sort of illness on the whole, but then had something that's so very sociological about it, like swearing. It's like, how on earth could those, so there's a fascination in that, isn't there? Yeah. So that's what got me into it and just started seeing patients. And I'm sure you know, when you start seeing patients, then more patients come and then you learn mm. more and then you get more interested. And then there's a snowball effect, isn't there? So um, what exactly do we mean by Tourette's syndrome then, Hugh? And to what extent does it occur on its own or alongside other conditions? Um, well, that's a good question. How What we mean by Tourette's syndrome at the moment is um, the way we've decided to define Tourette's syndrome, which is fairly rubbish, actually. So if you would say, what's the, what's the underlying thing, the core of Tourette's syndrome? It's a thing called tics. I think that's the core of it. And we think, well, tics are a movement disorder, but they really aren't. Tics are much more of a sensory whole person behavior disorder, I think I would call them. And um, 
the sensory bit is so much more important. The movement's just the bit that we happen to see and we can classify because we, we like looking at things and classifying things. And we sometimes forget to ask people, what's what's it like underneath? And that's the bit that also is interesting and defining. So it's that feeling of having to do something and and not if you don't do it, it builds up and builds up to you have to do it. And then when you do it, you feel better. And I think that's the that's the core of it, which puts it in the category that of a number of human behaviours, if you like, like uh, scratching an itch or even maybe yawning or coughing or sneezing. Uh, those things that you feel the need to do, that you can put off doing them and then but eventually you have to and then it makes you feel better afterwards. But maybe that feeling better reinforces your need to do them in the first place because you gave your brain a little reward. So that's the core of Tourette's is ticks. And those are the sudden jerky movements and behaviours that come with this sensation of wanting to, really. Sensation of having to. The other thing that I put some in common with, of course, is compulsions that you might see in obsessive compulsive disorder. And there are, they share a lot of characteristics. To, they share so many characteristics to the extent that some forms of human behaviour are not easily classifiable as either. They sort of some sit somewhere in the middle. But I think if you're going to divide them up a bit, maybe the, the compulsions bit, typically OCD compulsions are things that come with a lot of thinking attached to them. You know, if I don't do this particular thing, then some something catastrophic will happen for which I'm responsible personally. Now you don't really get that in ticks. You just feel like I need to do this. You don't think if I don't have a tick, my mum will die and it'll be my fault. You just feel like I need to twitch my nose or my ear or whatever it happens to be. So technically speaking, you could separate them. But in reality, there's a lot of things that are in a mushy world in the middle of things you feel like you have to do. And maybe that thinking bit comes after the need to do whatever the ritual is. I don't know. Has that answered your question? Yeah, that's that's great, uh, Hugh. Thank you. Um, I, I, it's... it's um... It's almost 40 years since uh, the man who mistook his wife for a hat and 30-odd mm -hmm. uh, since Sachs laid a paper on creativity and Tourette's. Mm -hmm. And that period has seen an explosion of brain science research. And I know this mm -hmm. is one area that's been extensively studied. So how much do we know about the brains of people with the condition? In, in other words, in what way are they kind of neurodiverse? Okay. If I was to be really honest, I would say we know very, very little still. There's a lot of papers on it. And of course, every paper you read mentions this dreadful word, corticostritothalamocortical circuitry, <laughs> which is basically saying there's something wrong with your brain in a pretty non-specific sort of way. But it sounds very specific when you say it. <laughs> and I hate that term. I hate, you know, every time you go to a meeting and another person puts up yeah. another parallel circuits in the basal ganglia slide my uh, something inside me dies a little bit more <laughs> it does remind me of there was a paper it was a similar paper written by tony david and bj psych it was a long time ago it's called frontal lobology mm. and in that paper he said you know there's no behavioral disorder in the history of mankind that hasn't at one stage been attributed to something wrong in the frontal lobe so if you're saying there's something wrong in the frontal lobe for a behavior disorder, it's equivalent of saying, you know, something a bit wrong up top. Mm. It's not a lot more specific than that. Yeah. So I guess 
we still don't really know is the answer. I guess there's some things we do know, some things we've learned. I think one of the things, one of the biggest things I think we've learned scientifically is that there's a genetics to this. It's genetics isn't everything, but the genetics seems to code for being a ticky person or not being a ticky person. And there's lovely genome-wide association studies. I think they've been replicated to show that the genetic predisposition predisposes to whether you're a ticky person or not. What it doesn't seem to predispose to is how bad it is. That seems to not be particularly genetic, but whether you're ticky or not seems to be very genetic. So I suppose we've learned that. How about then, dopamine? This has been a lot of uh, talk about. Uh, about I know that. there has, but I don't think it's helpful. Right. I mean, what, the, I suppose the only thing we could say about it is if you give people dopamine blockers, they don't tick so much. But they don't do anything else as much, do they, I suppose? It's yeah. Very, very very dopamine dependent, isn't it? I they don't do a lot of things. I don't think, yeah, I think it's it's too simplistic. Maybe it might be better to look at sort of functional neuroanatomical models and try and understand those. And I suppose if we're going to do that, then we sort of do start looking at the stratum. And if we're going to look at the stratum, I think we've got to have a different. Is this too scientifically technical? I don't know what your. No, no, no you carry on. It's okay. Uh, you can turn off if they don't like. <laughs> Fair enough. Well, the stratums are a bit in the middle of the brain, and and we were we were always taught, you know, they were parallel circuits. And in fact, when I was in med school in the eighties, we were taught it had nothing to do with human behaviour and emotion at all. And that we should jolly well keep our hands off it and we could have the limbic system whatever that was and the circuit of papes or whatever we called it we could have that that was all right but hands off the straight and that's neurology territory you weren't allowed there i didn't know when i was at medical school in 87 which you probably would know yourselves there was a seminal paper that came out by alexander and de long which was the first paper to elucidate the parallel circuitry in the basal ganglia which I subsequently found out in the late 90s. I'd never seen it before. And we certainly weren't taught that. And that was the first time people say, oh, look, there's some behavioral, emotional stuff in the striatum too. And then I suppose my next big heroine in this story is Suzanne Haber, who's a neuropathologist who did a lot of work on monkeys and um, look tracking these circuits in monkey, you know, higher primate brains, basically. And I've never met her, but I really, she's one of the people I really like to meet one of these days, even if she's still alive. Because what she showed was that, first of all, all sorts of other bits of anatomy connect to the striatum. So that's the amygdala with threat and the uncus with smell and the hippocampus with memory and the anterior cingulate gyrus and the orbitofrontal gyrus. And that within the striatum itself, all those circuits were intimately connected. They weren't parallel at all. Well, they were partly parallel, but they were the striatum was where they got together. And so I sort of that I think that helps us to understand Tourette's because first of all, you need to understand what the striatum is. And the striatum is basically part of a big predicting machine to, to get us away from horrible things and to get us towards nice things through the medium of movement and behavior. And so we basically have to have lots of input so threat input opportunity input potential reward input from the ventral stratum threat input from the amygdala and other places sensory input from the environment so all the normal senses if you like and from that and also cognitive input and future 
future planning input and affective input. So at the end of the day, we can formulate a plan or a series of plans about what it is we might do about it. And I suppose then the, when we're getting that, taking that back to ticks, we should stop thinking of ticks as movement, but actually they're fragments of behaviour. That's a much better way of looking at ticks, they're fragments of behaviour. Um, and now I want to tell you a little story about my bicycle along the canal. Sure. If that's okay. Because yeah. I come, I think you mentioned this for yourself, Ken. I come from a ticky family. My brother has Tourette's never diagnosed and ADHD and autism, actually. Non-diagnosed, but he's doing fine. He's a paramedic. Um, and I have some tics and I have OCD myself. So I'm, I've sort of got some skin in the game, if you like. Um, anyway, the main tick that I have, I've not had a lot of tics. The main tick I've had is throat clearing. But I noticed one day, because I cycled to work along the canal, and I noticed there was a pattern to my throat clearing because I'm cycling along the canal and there are people walking along the canal in the same direction, but a bit slower. Um, so I'm gradually catching up to them and overtaking them. I discovered that I did a throat clearing tick when I was between 20 and 30 yards before I got to the person. Completely involuntarily. And I suppose on one level, that was my brain saying, make a i don't know species specific warning noise that you're there <laughs> my best guess because very i noticed it it's very consistent and then there was another and i managed to extinguish that by using exposure and response prevention while i'm exposed to it every day going to work there's loads of students going on the canal and i've had a response prevention i did an alternative thing which was to ring my bell good idea why not um and I managed to get rid of that entirely. I don't even want to do that anymore. However, there's another thing that I do, which is the second you've overtaken the person on your bicycle, and when you sort of know that whatever the jeopard, minor jeopardy there is, is over, I did another throat clear <laughs> directly afterwards. And I don't quite know what that message is, what I'm saying, what I'm communicating, what my brain is communicating to the other person. It feels like I'm trying to communicate something to them. Um, and try as I might, I cannot extinguish that behaviour. Does it matter whether they're coming towards you or going away from you? In other words, whether they can... no, it seems to be almost always when we're going in the same direction, that they're just going slower than me. So they can't see you coming? They can't see me coming, yes. No, so that's why, that's that's an important part of it, isn't it? Because yeah. if they can see me coming, I don't need to warn them. No, no. I guess that's what it is. Yeah. And so that made me, and all I do is cough effectively, throat clear. Um, but we need to stop thinking about that as a movement disorder. That's a stupid way. Yeah. Well, we'll it's talk a... about my, my tics in a minute. I've just, Steve's got a question, I think. But, but <laughs> I have to say, well, I, my throat clearing tick is, is, is five minutes before I do a podcast. <laughs> I always <laughs> not during the podcast. Tick. No. But the rate at which Ken is churning out podcasts, though, that means he exhibits this tick quite often. That's quite often. Yeah, I'll come back to me. I'll come back to me. Over to you, Steve. Sorry. Okay. Well, thanks. I mean, uh, Hugh, that, that was a lovely explanation. Um, and uh, it really cheered me up to hear you talking about the brain and the circuitry in that way. Because, you know, it's just what we all knew all the time, really. It was yeah. lovely. Um, Thank you. Oliver Sachs suggested that in his experience, there's a subgroup of the syndrome he called phantasmagoric. 
And to quoting from his paper that involves mimicry, antics, playfulness, extravagance, impudence, audacity, inventions, dramatizations, and expected sometimes surreal associations, intense, uninhibited affects, speed, go, vivid imagery, and memory, hunger for stimuli, and incontinent reactivity, um, which is a particular term I, I liked, I think, uh, incontinent reactivity, and mimicry. Uh, and dramatization but that and that's the subgroup and um, probably most people don't do that they um, really don't but but yeah but, but some do and he wondered if that was to do with it or there's a suggestion that that's to do with the um the uh relationship to creativity and so on i mean could you what do you think what to what extent has that clinical impression been supported by subsequent research and, and are there identifiable subgroups within the syndrome okay um there are so gosh you have to go right back to the beginning for this answer to this question so i guess when tourette himself described it he was describing a bit more of that and i suppose doctors have a tendency to look for the exotic don't they and certainly in 19th century Paris that was particularly true and so his original descriptions were a little bit more like what you described the Saxe version of it if you like interestingly another neurologist Armand Trousseau about 15 years before described Tourette's syndrome in the way we would see it probably these days something a bit more prosaic not quite so exotic and the familial very familial he described that in Nancy in I don't know 1860 something or other before before um Tourette got his hands on and it's, I suppose the moral of that story is if you come from the fancy big center you're much more likely to get an eponymous syndrome named after yeah. you, you come from out in the sticks of Nancy I suppose um so there's that bit then the the next bit is is it a subgroup well, I suppose in my experience it is, but it's quite a small subgroup. And I've met a couple of people like that, including one chap who um, he said, I've got this thing that other people call Tourette syndrome because he was very much a sort of Foucauldian postmodernist who was like, well, I'm actually, I don't think of myself as having an illness. I think you lot have got a problem with tolerance. Sort of thing. <laughs> he, had, he had literally had the worst Tourette syndrome. You could clear a pub out in five minutes. He did his, he did his PhD with me on postmodern interpretations of you know so-called Tourette syndrome or something at Manchester Metropolitan University um and he was like that he was a circus performer brilliant absolutely brilliant so he didn't have any problem with his coordination and he was very flamboyant and talkative and had a very busy brain expanding going to all sorts of places the other person who I guess has made a living out of that is Tourette's hero. You might have seen Tourette's hero. Her real name is Jess Tom. She's had, you know, bad Tourette's all her life. Um, she she said, she called herself Tourette's hero because she said Tourette's is a superpower and she's got a special costume and she became a stand-up comedian. And she's worth listening to actually. She's very hilariously funny. She's still making a good living out of it. And she's got a whole series of songs that she sings, whereby in the middle of the song, she will just let her brain expand and say these, you know, things just, there's no real filter. 
Can you send me a link out. here? I'll put it on the episode notes, actually. Tourette's hero. And she's an absolute... Look, I mean, you should interview her if you want to. Oh, that might be good, actually. Yeah. I'm sure, um, if you want me to get you in contact with her, tell her... Because I know her quite well. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, and she's a really lovely person. That'd be great. We're short of artists, actually, on, on here. They, they seem a little more reluctant than academics to, to chat. Oh, well... The yeah. likes of us... <laughs> Yeah, and uh, well, she's done a lot of work for the, the community. Right. The other place you see it is in support group meetings. So in other words, you get like, I don't know, 30 people with Tourette's syndrome together in a room and you make it as safe as it could possibly be. Then I guess what you see is that people will allow that side of themselves to come out. Right. So... Um, I remember once um, myself and my colleague Andrea Cavana, who's done a lot of work in this area, we did a we did a meeting. I think the association sponsored a meeting, and there were probably about thirty people in the meeting. I would say twenty seven of whom had Tourette syndrome, and there was a table. I suppose you call it the naughty table at the back. These were mainly adults with Tourette syndrome with who were feeling playful and happy and relaxed, and they were just letting it out really letting all that word play and spontaneity and what i mean what the stuffy people call nosies which stands for non-obscene socially inappropriate statements or something i, I so, was gonna, speaking personally i mean i've had tics throughout my life on and off yeah. mainly motor yeah. Uh, twitching and, and but also some sniffing and, and, and it's most obviously at times of stress or if i'm concentrating and there's something about that nervous energy that uh, seems to spill into a kind of involuntary ideas generation. It tends to go off on tangents. I know Sachs writes beautifully and convincingly on many subjects, but we know that replicable evidence is another thing. So what does the evidence say about creativity and Tourette? I mean, is, is there any... It really, does. it really doesn't. I mean, I suppose that's where... That's the... That's the the downside to the story is that there are clearly people with Tourette syndrome who as a result of their syndrome are wonderfully, you know, that, that, that I suppose that lack of uh, unconscious filter to things allows ideas to spill forth and, um, you know, that can be productive, but it can also be awful as well. And it doesn't apply to everybody. So most people I know with Tourette syndrome aren't that person mm -hmm. and they haven't really leveraged it for the benefit of their lives or have been able to leverage for the people who have are fairly few and far between i would say i suppose this would be my critique of oliver sacks is his whole shtick isn't it is about you know these are people with illnesses but my golly look how amazing and talented they are and that they can do things that nobody else can do and i suppose that's a dramatic bit of storytelling but the reality of it is you know, you've got a young boy of 12 or something in a secondary school and he's absolutely appalled and ashamed by his tics and he hides in the library all day because he knows he's going to get the shit kicked out of him. And I guess if you, if you collect cases like Oliver Sacks, then people send you cases like Oliver Sacks, don't they? Do, do yeah, they do. They, you, you get this this um, unusual selection of cases and you think, oh, they're all like that. You yeah. And it's, uh, you know, frankly, it sells books. Yeah, yeah, of course. So yeah, yeah, and it and it it also hooks people like me in. 
That's a great, when you're a 15 year old and you read that for the first time, you think it's the most amazing thing you've ever read and you just want to do that all your life as a job, yeah. which I've been lucky enough to do. So oh. that's partly down to him. Thank you, Oliver. Oh, that's yeah, lovely. Thank you. Yes. Creativity is a very, very broad term, isn't it? And yeah. could cover the arts and the sciences and I suppose everyday life. And it's to do with coming up with stuff that's new and appropriate, I think. Uh, as well, rather maybe, than mad and inappropriate, uh, that sort of thing. You, take you back to the striatum and say, if, yeah. you have, if you have a theory, a neuronam, this is my neuroanatomical theory of Tourette, if you like, not very proven, but this is this is it based on the experience, um, is that at any point in time, we have a whole bunch of ideas, drives, drives to behave or do or think affects and they're all sort of coming up from below saying do mm. me do me now but actually you you're not aware of most of them because thank god thank god bits of your brain probably the stratum just looks at all of those let's say at any one time there's 50 things 50 sensations or drives competing for your attention and you know a bit of your brain i think probably the stratum mainly is basically triaging them and saying salient salient not salient not salient not salient and the not salient ones it just dumps and you never know anything about it and occasionally a salient one will pop through if you've got a good filter saying i mean i like you know when you're aware in the night that you want to go to the toilet and have a wee you know it's not salient and it gradually becomes more salient till it becomes unavoidable and then it brings it into your conscious mind saying decide about me it comes it brings in your conscious mind as an urge to do something to behave in a certain way and then make a decision about what you're going to do um and then i i suppose my way of looking at tourettes is that you get whereas a non-tourette person might get one of those at a time and then maybe it's the right one you know for the moment it's working quite well a Tourette person is getting a whole bunch of these all the time, going twitch leg, blink eye, you know, turn on the sixpence, say bollocks, whatever it might be. Um, so it's to do with the executive bit. I suppose it's, it's over the salience, the, the filtering yeah, bit, isn't it? It's going, you know, is this is this right for the moment? And, you know, if it, and if it doesn't know, if it can't work that out, then it brings it, it sort of puts it forward to your conscious brain going, yeah, you probably want to do this. And you have to say, no, not now, brain. No, it's not the moment to say bollocks when I'm going for my job interview. Shut up. And maybe your brain wants to do that because it's feeling a bit threatened in a job interview situation. And it wants to, you know, do a bit of territorial dominance. And, you know, we've learned through social learning that, a word like bollocks might have the effect, if you like. I think this ties into, into my last my last podcast with David Reddish, and he's a, a brain information pro processing specialist. And he, he quoted somebody who said the brain metabolizes information and and makes computations basically based on that. And and that what we're trying to define is well, what how does that processing go wrong? Do you know what I mean? And, and in different sort of situations and to try and disentangle it. So it is a nice sort of time. It's, a, it's the triage that goes wrong, I think. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's you've got a whole bunch of requests and you want to work out which ones are relevant for the moment. And I suppose that brings us, I suppose, to coprolalia, which is, you know, why would you say socially inappropriate swear words? 
personally, my view is it's again, probably there is a small trigger like there is for me when I do my coughing on the bicycle thing. I'm probably trying to com communicate something. Uh, maybe it's there's I guess probably we make we know this because we swear in response to small threats, like if we're surprised or we hit our thumb with a hammer or something. Um, because we do that, don't we? Mm. And I think we're probably when we hit our thumb with our hammer and we go bollocks really loudly. Mm. I think probably what we're communicating is doing some sort of species specific communication to say to the other people round about be hyper vigilant because there's some nasty, dangerous hammers around here that could hit your thumb too. But what do so, they say in Japan when they hit their thumb with a hammer? Because well, that's thing about, interesting. Is there something about English that you know is no, not really. It's universal, but it's usually, I suppose, if you look, what's in common with the words with swearing is they're all they're all taboo, and they're all things that will make other people hyper vigilant. Right, right. So characteristically, like the classic one in Japan is a word which is kusobaba, which means shit grandma. Oh, right. Which is probably, you know, grandma is a poo, right. which is probably the worst thing you could say. Yeah. Is there any evidence that it's less common, coprolalia, in, in Japan or in China? I don't think so. I never, well, heard, okay. I never okay. heard that. And it's Coprolele. not that. Coprolalia can exist without a Tourette's, though, can't it? Hmm, is, yes, um, can, I suppose brain injury, maybe. Yeah. Well, also, oh, know. culturally, sometimes you know. If you think ah, about, well, I yeah. Yes, we were saying there. But, I mean, you know, people have in the past went on about Mozart having Tourette's, and and you know, you know, like, there was a hundred years before Tourette's. There's a lovely, there's a lovely lecture on that, which Mary yeah, Robinson I did. Know. And yeah. she she said she her conclusion was she wrote about the BMJ actually. God, mm. God no, thirty years ago. Mm. So her conclusion was no he just liked wordplay and he liked to swear yeah and i think she said it was oh, I, i'm talking to her about it maybe it, that it wasn't necessarily culturally inappropriate just to be very no. potty mouthed at that no, it time. really wasn't and uh and so but but people have sort of latched onto that and thought it was somehow important yeah, did mozart have tourette's that was the article in the bmj yeah but there's I a lovely no there's a lovely radio broadcast on the moment by Ian Hislop about swearing and humour in the past. It's worth a listen to. Oh, um, right. Gosh, the, I mean, medieval monks were <laughs> disgusting <laughs> with their swearing and their copra philic references of one kind or another. Yeah, the Canterbury Tales is full of that stuff. Isn't mm. it? Yeah, it really is. Yeah. So that's not new. We were thinking the olden days people, they were all very polite. I don't know where we got that idea from. No, so it's important to contextualize all these things, isn't it? And that's different too. Anyway, creativity is what mm. we've been interested in, isn't it? And yeah. um, and whether there's a subgroup, whether that helps with the creativity. There, there's been a couple of papers in the last year and um, coming up Milan. I don't know if you've come across them, uh, where they've um, tried um, being psychologists. I think have given people with Tourette syndrome and so and non-Tourette controls various questionnaires about whether they're convergent or divergent thinkers and things like that and they find mm -hmm. that uh, um, those Tourette's people that tended that scored highly on the divergent scale uh, I think the population as a whole wasn't different between the two for divergent thinking but the ones that were high on divergent they felt that their uh, act being involved in divergent creative activities um, modulated their tics the severity and frequency of them as well and so they, there's a conclusion that they came up with, 
um, which said, uh, these findings suggest a pos potential positive implications of creative thinking in non-pharmacological interventions. <laughs> I said, I mean, I know people who teach creative writing. Mm. And I, goodness knows how, I said that could be a treatment for Tourette's. It's <laughs> interesting. <laughs> Yeah, actually, Sachs raises a, a, a talks about a case, a, a cases of actors and DJs he's he's met, who mm, take furiously mm. just before they go on, and then when they're on, you know, broadcasting or performing, they stop. I mean, have you come across? Oh, that's that? a fact. That's mm. a fact. That's a nailed down fact. Mm. I have patients like that. I've had actor, actor patients who say when they're in the wings, they're ticking and habiting in all sorts of ways. As soon as they get on stage, gone, just like that. And I suppose that tells us something about the difference between sort of what I would call proximal anxiety and distal anxiety or anticipatory anxiety. You know, if you think the, the saber-toothed tiger is over the hill and it might come at some point theoretically, that's when you're going to be ticky. If you've got the saber-toothed tiger in front of you and you're trying to get the hell out of there, you're not going to be ticky. So I think there is, and you see that in the kids, they're always bad the last two weeks of the summer holiday just before they go back to school so that's i would say that's a nailed on fact about Tourette's this anticipatory anxiety makes it worse and fight or flight makes it better but, but people with adhd are capable of intense concentration on, on some things aren't they absolutely so and, uh, i think a level of stimulus might be something you sometimes yeah. see that kid Tourette kids if they're fully immersed in a game they might stop ticking yeah yeah so like you said there's a lot because ADHD is, is as I think we said before is a, it's a it's a rather loose thing that seems to overlap a bit with what mm. we understand in Tourette's and then OCD as well. I think and it does. It's, it's all part of the of some sort of massive spectrum probably going. I on think that's there. probably it's a bit unsatisfactory, but I think it's probably true. Yeah, the Milan people also described that the the Tourette's group were scored more highly on convergent thinking. Oh. Um, as solving problems than the control group, which I thought was a bit surprising. That's a non-creative thinking, but I, okay. I I wasn't sure from that whether whether they were treated or not, whether medicated. Do you think that the treatment affects? I was wondering um, in your experience, you know, just the the treatment that you give people dopamine blockers, don't you usually? Does that have an effect on their creativity, on their ability to concentrate? Does it enhance their I concentration? Mean, I would say there's good and bad in that mm. i think um, in the sense that it might dampen down your urge to tick mm. that might actually be an advantage for you but i i mean i've never known any neuroleptic help a person with greater creative thinking in any circumstance <laughs> so no. you know you know we we've all had plenty of patients on neuroleptics yeah and they're and, all traditional ones aren't they that's the other thing mm. and they're not it doesn't enhance creativity well, that's been brilliant, uh, Hugh. Thanks mm. so much. I, I will look forward to uh, having what, um, a discussion with somebody with Tourette's who's also creative, really. So, that, that, but, yeah, if we could set that up, I would be uh, a, a bit... Well, if I send you her details, Please. or maybe if I can find any... Because she did actually contact me recently. She's always touring and doing different things yeah, yeah. oh well I, I will definitely look at uh, yeah Tourette heroes I'll look her up anyway but if you look her up on YouTube look up Tourette syndrome Tourette's hero and Captain Hot Knives oh right Captain <laughs> great <laughs> well, Captain Hot Knives is a guitarist singer from Barnsley and they teamed up together and they've oh, got right. a duo 
comedy singing act, which is based on some of her songs, have little spaces where there's no lyrics written and things just come out of her. Right. Brilliant. Thanks so much. Yeah, thanks. Oh, it's a pleasure. Yeah. Lovely to see you both. Thank you. Thank you.